Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and, it, and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall over Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go, you don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Um, as I was taking Roswell down for Grace Kids there, she looked at me and she said, Daddy, what's that? Is that so people don't fall asleep? <laughs> and I think with a room half full of people who've been in a tent all week, I think we need more than a microphone. But we'll give it a go, shall we? I want to start by thinking about um, first impressions. First impressions are uh, powerful things, aren't they? The first impression that you get about someone or something can really colour the way that you see them. For a long time, we form an opinion and it can take a long time to overcome it. You see it all over the place. Think about um, Hermione in Harry Potter. When Ron and um, Harry and the readers first meet Hermione, she just seems like a, a kind of know-it-all, goody-goody, um, who thinks she's better than anyone else. It's not a great first impression. But as you get to know the character through the books, you see someone who has a really strong sense of right and wrong, someone who is fiercely loyal and compassionate and genuinely smart and wise. And, and so some of those traits that first appeared negative, you actually come to realize are real positives, real strengths, things you come to appreciate and even admire in her. So in life, we have to be careful 
not to place too much stock on our first impressions, for good or ill, we need to get to know someone to understand them. And that will shape our response um, to those things that we first saw in them. We might have been right, we might not. Uh, you have to get to know someone to see. Now in Grace Church, as Ben said, we're going through a series looking at uh, the story of Exodus in the Bible. The story of God's people, the Hebrews, being rescued from cruel slavery in Egypt and being brought out into a land of their own. And in the story, we've, we've met three main characters. We've met Moses, who has been raised up to, to lead the rescue. We've met Pharaoh, the great rival who is setting himself up against God, refusing to let the people go. And we've met God, the one who has heard the cries of his people and who is acting on their behalf. And at the stage of the story that we're at at the moment, Pharaoh is refusing to let the people go. He wants to keep them as slaves for himself. And so God is intervening on their behalf. He's sending a series of plagues against Egypt. He's piling on the pressure to Pharaoh. He's trying to break him so that he'll change his mind and so that he'll set God's people free from slavery. And last week, Amy helped us look through the first batch of plagues. Uh, and she really helpfully honed in on the two kinds of kings we see in the story. God, who is strong and committed and consistent and faithful, Versus Pharaoh, who is weak and unyielding and selfish and untrustworthy. And this week we're going to look at the kind of next batch of plagues. But we're going to look plagues, but we're going to look at them from a, a slightly different angle. You see, throughout these plagues, you get some phrases or kind of themes or ideas that are repeated again and again and again. And when you see things in the Bible being repeated over and over again... We need to stand up and pay attention. The writer clearly wants us to, to notice something. And so today we're just going to look at a couple of those ideas and we're going to grapple with them a bit. And I say grapple with them because on first impression, these, these phrases, these ideas, to some of us, might not seem like good things. It might be a bit Hermione. Our first impression might be to not really like these things. But what I want us to do is to just dig beneath the surface of them a little bit to see if there's something more than first meets the eye with them. And the first thing I want us to look at is this. What is the goal of God's rescue here? What is the goal of God's rescue? Why does God want to go through with this, this battle with Pharaoh, with these plagues, with this eventual, eventual rescue? Why is he doing it? Well, the first of these repeated Phrases or ideas helps us to see this. Open up your Bibles with me, back in Exodus if you've shut them. Let's, let's flick through and see why God is rescuing these people. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 13. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Well, this time I will sell the full, send the full force of my plagues against you and your, against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And then just go down with me to verse 16 of that chapter. Um, and if, uh, God is speaking to Pharaoh here and he says, to Pharaoh, God says, but I have raised you up for this very purpose 
that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And now flick forward. Chapter 10, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Why is God rescuing his people? Well, in his own words, it's so that they may worship him. It's so that they will know that there's no one like the Lord in all the earth. It's so that future generations will know how he dealt with the Egyptians and therefore know that Yahweh, their God, is the Lord. And so on. Look through previous chapters, you see the same ideas over and over again. God is rescuing these people for the sake of his, his worship and for the sake of his own reputation. Now, when you hear that, what's your first impression? Here's what I reckon some of us think. It just sounds a bit egotistical. Now, imagine if I stood up here today and I said to you, I want you all to worship me. You'd think, get a grip. <laughs> get over yourself. Who does he think he is asking us to worship him? We just wouldn't have it, would we? You'd think, and he'd knock him down a peg or two. And rightly so. And yet here in Exodus, we have God unashamedly saying that the goal of his rescue of his people is that they'd worship him. And he says it in such a way to show that he thinks that other people should think it's a good idea too. He talks about how the rescue will make people see that there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. And he means it in a good way. He talks about the future generations looking back fondly on all of this. So what is the deal here? How does all this add up? Here's the thing. It would be crazy for me to stand up here and tell you all to worship me because I am not worthy of that. I'm just like you, probably a bit worse than you. Why on earth would you worship me? When it comes to God, we're talking about someone on a whole different plane. God is the one who is the creator of everything. Everything good that you have in your life comes from him. Nothing that exists, exists without him. He is utterly perfect in every way. He has never done anything wrong. We owe everything to him. And so given all of that, then worship is the only appropriate response. It's what he deserves. When God rescues his people in order for them to worship him, he's only calling for what is good and right and proper. Worshipping God is the appropriate thing to do. And so it's perfectly right for him to call his people to do that. But, even as I say that, I'm conscious that for many of us, that still won't feel like a satisfying answer. Our first impression still hasn't been dispelled. And that's because I think we need to go a step further still. There's more to the answer to this. And that's this. When we, what we need to realise is this. When God calls us to worship him, it's not just for his glory. It's not just because he deserves it, even though he does. 
God calls us to worship him because it's good for us too. In calling us to worship him, he has our best interests at heart. It's good for us. How so? Well, let me try and help us see this with an illustration. Let's imagine for a minute that I found out that, um, I don't know, at the Town Hall Theatre tomorrow, 1pm, if you go along there, you will be given £1,000. Imagine I found that out. Now, you'd expect that if I care about you, I would tell you that, right? You'd think that if I, if I really cared about you, I'd let you know that this was on offer. If I knew that this good thing was available for you, then unless I give you the details of how you get it, then you'll miss out. You'd think I wasn't loving if I didn't tell you that. You'd think I didn't have your best interest at heart if I didn't tell you about this thing that was on offer for you. The Town Hall Theatre, £1,000. Well, take that idea, take that illustration, and multiply it by a gazillion. We were made to know God. We were made to be in relationship with him, to, to worship him, to be with him. It's a core part of what it means to be human. It's perhaps the core part of what it means to be human. When we don't know him, when we don't relate to him in that way, when we don't worship him, we end up worshipping other things, inferior things. We worship our career and we sacrifice time and money and emotional energy for it or we worship sex or family or money or reputation or a thousand other things but these things can never be god they can never do for us what god does c.s lewis says this nadine was saying this week that c.s lewis has a quote for everything and so i thought i'd go with one c.s lewis says this we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God knows that true satisfaction can only be found when our worship is directed towards him. God knows that what is on offer to us is way better than a thousand pounds at the town hall. Could we really call him good? Could we really say that he loved us if he didn't tell us about infinite joy that was available to us? If he let us miss out on that? But he doesn't do that. He calls us to worship him. And so when he says that he's rescuing the Israelites so that they can worship him, when he says that he's making the plagues happen so that they'll know that there is no one like the Lord in all the earth, our first impression might be negative. Our first impression might be that it's egotistical. But I hope what we see is that he's actually pursuing our good. When he calls them to worship him, he knows it's for their good. He doesn't want them to them to miss out and the same is true for us too when he calls us to worship him yes it's because he deserves it of course he does but it's also for our good he calls us away from our mud pies to a holiday by the sea he's offering us infinite joy that's the first um, false impression that i wanted um, to address that we see in the plagues time and time again I hope now that when you read that, when you read God calling us to worship him, you'll see it as good news. But there's one other um, impression that I want us to engage with. And, and for me personally, 
This is one of the things that I find hardest to read about, hardest to speak about in Christianity. And I'm talking about the judgment of God. You can't get away from it in these chapters. It feels pretty relentless. Time after time after time, in these chapters of Exodus, we see God judging the Egyptians. And let's not kid ourselves here. We might have, when we read these plagues, we might have kind of childhood Sunday school impressions of what they were like, of cute little frogs jumping everywhere. Um, That's far from the truth. These plagues would have had serious impact on the lives of the Egyptians. Crops failed. Livestock died. There would have been huge food shortages, economic collapse, public health crises, way worse than what we've seen in this pandemic. God's judgment on the Egyptians here is no cartoon. The judgment that we see from God is real and devastating. And though this judgment of God is perhaps more vivid here than other places in the Bible, we have to face up to the reality that throughout the Bible we see a God who judges. What is a God who judges? And so what do we make of that? I'm sure for many of us, our first impression is to, is to flinch a little bit at the idea of God's judgment. The idea of God judging like that can leave a bitter taste in our mouth. And let me say that I think there's a sense in which that's okay. We are not meant to like judgment. I've been around churches long enough to know that you get certain kind of streams of Christianity that almost relish God's judgment. You hear so-called hellfire and brimstone preachers who seem to get a sort of thrill or, or delight in announcing God's judgment I don't think that's the right attitude. But the opposite end of the spectrum is to shy away from it completely. Or if the, if the Bible is true, we, we can't do that. Because the Bible, in the Bible, God judges. In fact, to be more specific, Jesus judges. It's not okay to just brush this off as an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus is the one who will judge. And so if our first impression with the idea of the judgment of God is to, to recoil a little bit, let's see if we can just go underneath beyond that first impression. And I want us to see uh, three things, just three brief things about God's judgment here in these chapters of Exodus that hopefully will help us to move beyond that first impression. And here's the first thing. Number one, it's a restrained judgment. It's a restrained judgment. When we look at the plagues and we see the cost that the Egyptians face because of these plagues, we need to remember why God is judging them. Think about what they've done. For years, the Israelites have been brutally treated, forced labour, beaten for not doing the work that they could never do because they weren't given the right materials. A whole race has been subjugated and enslaved. And that's not to mention the, the mass execution of every single boy that was born to an Israelite. Now this treatment of the Israelites came at Pharaoh's command, but it was carried out by the Egyptians. 
We see again and again in history, not least in Nazi Germany, where horrific acts are justified and normalised and explained away, not just by the leaders, but by the population at large. There must have been some of this going on in Egypt for such widespread, brutal treatment of these Jews to have happened. It was awful. And punishment for that is appropriate. It is right for God to judge it. In fact, it would be wrong for him not to. Given the actions of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, these people should have been judged, but the judgment that God gives is restrained. In many ways, you could say that they should have been judged more harshly than they were. Even the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons, which we'll look at next week, it's, it's a horrific judgment on the Egyptians. But actually... Compared to what the Egyptians did to the Israelites, where every single boy was killed, not just the firstborn, this is a restrained judgment. Now you get a hint of this idea that God is restrained in judgment in what he says in chapter 9, verse 15. Just look at that with me. Chapter 9, verse 15, it says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. It would not have been unjust for God to have done that. It would have been perfectly reasonable, but he didn't. It was a restrained judgment. That was number one. And it's a restrained judgment because, number two, God has an impulse to show mercy. Now, at times in my life as a Christian, I've had this idea that God doesn't want to judge people. That his, His hands are kind of tied. He wants to not judge anyone. But he has this part of his character, his being, an essential part of who he is, that means justice has to be done. He'd rather that wasn't there. He doesn't want to judge, but he can't help it because he has to be true to what he, who he is. Otherwise, he would be unjust. I don't know if you've ever thought like that about God. Well, if you have, when I have, both of us have been wrong. It is true. That God is intrinsically righteous and just. But that's not a reluctant part of him. It is not wrong for God to look at evil and to hate it and to want to destroy it. In fact, it's good. It's part of what it means for him to be a God of love. How so? in Romans 12, Paul says this. He says, love must be sincere. And he goes on to kind of extrapolate, to expand upon what this love is. And the very next thing he says is this. He says, so he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. What does it mean for God to, to love people, even though they are at times, evil. We might be tempted to think that the loving thing to do is to just look the other way, to ignore those parts of humanity. But I don't think that's true. It's been said many times before, but I think it's important for us to see that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. To truly love someone 
means to hate the parts of them that are destroying them, the parts that mar them and make them less than all they could be. Indifference to those things, just looking the other way, isn't a sign that we love them. If we really care about people, then we'll hate those parts of them that are destroying them. And so God, if he is to be a God of love, he must take sin and evil seriously. He must hate it. But, and this is a really important but, alongside God's just and appropriate reaction to evil, there is another aspect of his character that we can't overlook. And that's his mercy. Core to who God is, is a desire to show mercy, to forgive. And actually, this is the deepest part of God. We see this thread throughout the Bible, and there's not time to trace it now, but let me just remind you of a couple of things. We're told, for example, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. We see Jesus, uh, as he comes into Jerusalem and he sees how they're rejecting God, we see him weeping over their um, sin and rebellion. And more significantly of all, we see God the Son, Jesus, willingly coming and taking on our sin and paying the price for our sin on the cross so that we can receive mercy instead of judgment. He will judge. His love compels him to. But he'd rather take that judgment on himself and show mercy. He'd rather forgive. We're told that God is holding off from the day of uh, that final day of judgment so that more and more people can have the chance to repent, to come back to him, to say sorry, to, to receive forgiveness, so that they don't have to face his wrath. God has an impulse to mercy. And we see all of that in the story um, of these plagues. Here's a wonderful thing. The reason God doesn't just wipe out those people like he said he could in, in chapter 9, verse 15, is because he wants to send these plagues. The judgment that he's sending, these plagues that he's sending, are designed, at least in part, to give the Egyptians, yes, the Egyptians, opportunity for salvation. He has an impulse to mercy. They act like a warning to the Egyptians, giving them time to be saved. And that's the third thing I want us to see about God's judgment. First, it's a restrained judgment. Second, God has an impulse to show mercy. And so, third, God warns the Egyptians. God warns the Egyptians. We see God warning them in two ways. You see, the, the, the slow build-up of the plagues acts as a warning in itself. God increasingly shows his power so that the Egyptians have chance to realise who he is and to turn to him. And as well as that, God also gives warnings before sending many of the plagues, many of the individual ones. And he warns the Egyptians, many of them heed that warning and are spared. For example, look at the plague of hail in chapter 9 that Ben read for us earlier. God um, warns the Israelites and the Egyptians alike what's coming, and he tells them to protect their livestock and their servants. And look at verse 20 of chapter 9. It says, Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. 
but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. God wants to show mercy. You get the increasing picture as these plagues go on that these warning signs from God are doing their job. They are causing the Egyptians to turn to God. Just look at chapter 10, verse 7, for example. It says, Pharaoh's official said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? That's the officials, the Egyptian officials saying that to Pharaoh. God's judgment is restrained because he wants to show mercy and so he warns the Egyptians. And now let's just fast forward. Let's just fast forward to when Pharaoh finally gives in, finally let, finally let the people go. Look what we're told. Chapter 12, verse 37. says this. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Many other people were with the Israelites when they, when they escaped from Egypt. Who are they? Egyptians. Those who have heard the warnings, received God's mercy, and decided to align themselves with God's people rather than continue to obey Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. You don't really hear mention of, of these people after this point in, in the Bible. And do you know why that is? Because they became part of God's people. The Egyptians, going forward, were no longer Egyptians. They were God's people. Not genetically descended from Abraham, but by putting their faith in God to rescue them from Pharaoh, and by aligning themselves with God's people, they became part of them. And so do you see, we might look at these plagues, and we see God's judgment, and our first impression, our first response might be to recoil. But we need to look deeper than that. Because actually... God would have been well within his rights to judge far more harshly than this, to just wipe them out and get his people out. But he didn't. His judgment was restrained because his impulse is to mercy. He wanted to forgive the Egyptians too, to give them chance to turn back on their evil. And so instead of simply wiping them out, he warned them. And many turned to him. And when we see that, we have to realise that it's good news for us too. Because we too have sinned. Our sin might not look the same as the Egyptians did, but we too have turned our backs on God. We've worshipped other things. We've lived as though God is not there. We've, we've taken his world and we've lived in it without reference to him. And we can see the damage that that has done to ourselves, to, to other people and to the world. We too deserve judgment, but God's judgment on us is restrained too. He delays it so that we can heed the warning, because he wants to show us mercy. Jesus has died for us so that he can show us mercy. He's paid the price for our sins so that we don't have to. And now he calls us back to him. 
He calls us to, to trust him, to trust that he can rescue us too. He calls us to align ourselves with him and his people like the Egyptians. Right now, we are in, in the period of warning. And so the question each of us needs to answer is, will we listen? Will we heed the warning? God weeps over our sin. He doesn't delight in the idea of having to judge us. He yearns to show us, show us mercy, to forgive us. And so we need to answer the question, will we receive it? Will we receive his forgiveness? If you're here today and you're not sure that you have received that forgiveness, let me urge you to take this seriously. God will judge, but he wants to show mercy. Please, let me encourage you to speak to me or to speak to someone you know who's a Christian here today. We'd love to chat this through more. Let me just wrap this up for now. Sometimes our first impressions are wrong. Whether you're a Christian here this afternoon or not, it might be that you've allowed some of your first impressions of God to stick around for too long. But I hope we've seen this afternoon that God is good, that he is that hope that we've got to taste that he is, is truly worthy of our worship and that in knowing him is infinite joy. I hope that each of us will leave here today more sure of that and therefore be ready to come to him for mercy and to live lives in worship of him. Let me pray that that would be so and then we'll worship him in song before we finish our time together. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for not giving up on us. You, you look at us and you see us worshipping all sorts of things that aren't worthy of our worship and that let us down. When you know that if we come to you, there is infinite joy on offer. Thank you that you don't just um, give up on us, but that you call us to worship you. Yes, you deserve it. And you do it because you deserve it, but you also do because you know it's for our good. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to, to know that our sin is real, that you hate it, but that you don't want to judge us, that you will judge us, and that that is right, but that you want to show us mercy. You want us to come to you for forgiveness. And so I just pray that each one of us here... Uh, this afternoon would do that. Just give us a moment, um, each of us, to, to speak to God in our own hearts, to maybe bring those things before him, uh, to ask, ask for forgiveness and to worship him in our hearts. Let me give us a moment to do that now.